Though as a child, I was forbidden from watching Beavis and Butthead, <laughs> the show that made its creator, Mike Judge, famous, as a young adult, I found his second great satirical work, King of the Hill, irresistible. Set in the fictional town of Arlen, Texas, King of the Hill uses exaggerated portrayals of Southern America to poke fun at many of the institutions that shaped my childhood. Judge's knowledge of sports-obsessed, religion-obsessed, meat-obsessed, masculinity-obsessed culture enable him to offer insights so subtle that the audience can't always tell whether Judge is trying to build up those institutions or tear them down. One of my favorite episodes, which for the most part still holds up today, is called Isle 8A. In the episode, the main character, Hank Hill, and his wife, Peggy, are babysitting their neighbor's daughter, Connie, whose parents have gone to Hawaii on a business trip. One morning, after Peggy rushes out the door to her substitute teaching job, Hank learns that Connie has gotten her first period. He panics, of course, at one point asking the equally panicked girl, do you know how to tie a tourniquet? As the episode unfolds, we see how the show challenges all of the stereotypes about menstruation. Faced with what he has termed a crisis, Hank musters all the manly courage he can summon and takes Connie to the Megalomart to get the necessary supplies. When it comes to teaching her how to use those supplies, however, Hank has met his match. Unable to call his wife on the phone while she is teaching, Hank instead calls the police, who race to the school and whisk Peggy home to confront the crisis. After Hank euphemistically explains what was going on to his spouse, who had assumed that someone had died, Peggy says, oh Lord, poor Connie. To which Hank replies, poor Connie, poor me. I had to learn about megalabsorbency. Shocked, Peggy says, you went down aisle 8A? We have been married for 20 years and I can't get you past aisle 5. To which Hank quickly retorts, I wasn't joyriding, Peggy. It was a medical emergency. Mike Judge, in his wit and wisdom, wants us to recognize that when it comes to menstruation, 21st century America isn't all that different from first century Palestine. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus encounters two desperate people. A father who would give anything for his daughter to be healed and a woman who would give anything for her own healing. Both are humbled by their condition. Jairus, a leader of the synagogue, a powerful man by any measure, throws himself down at Jesus' feet, begging him repeatedly to come and save his 12-year-old daughter from death. The woman, whose menstrual bleeding had continued for 12 long years, 
and who had exhausted all of her resources in search of a cure, she slips through the crowd unnoticed in order to get close enough to Jesus to touch his cloak, trusting that even contact with the holy man's clothes will heal her of her ostracizing disease. Both are desperate. Both are humbled. Both have no other hope than Jesus. But that's where their similarities end. Jairus is the cultural embodiment of power. As the leader of the synagogue, he was rich enough to be its patron, holy enough to be its figurehead, and connected enough to be its advocate. How strange it must have been for the crowd to see this man of authority and control, the man who could have gotten anything he wanted, the man whose closeness to God surely was enough to earn him a miracle. How strange it must have been to see that man fall helplessly on the ground at Jesus' feet and beg for his charity. The woman, on the other hand, is not even worthy enough to have a name, at least not one we remember. Isolated from her family, banned from the synagogue, shunned from the community as a woman scorned by God, she had spent every penny she had in search of a cure that would allow her to rejoin society, that would give her once again a place in God's family. The woman could not afford to make herself known to Jesus because she could not risk him refusing her request. It is no accident that the nameless woman interrupts Jesus on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. As the local religious authority, he is the one responsible for making sure that unclean women like her aren't permitted in the synagogue, that they dare not get in the way of God's presence among God's people. It is no accident that her interruption delays Jesus long enough that Jairus' daughter dies. Imagine what he felt when he saw Jesus stop in the middle of the crowd. Imagine his anxiety as he wondered whether this, his last hope, would make it to his house on time. Imagine the grief and rage he felt when he learned that his daughter had died and recognized who it was that had gotten in the way of her healing. But why should his need for a miracle be more important or valuable than hers? This was that nameless woman's only chance at healing, too. In ways deeply craftful, Mark begins this story as if there's only enough time for one of them to be healed, as if Jesus will only be able to help one of them. And by sandwiching together these two desperate needs, Mark forces us to wonder why anyone would presume that the woman's opportunity for healing wasn't as important as Jairus's. Why a religious outcast wouldn't have just as much a claim on God's saving love as the leader of a synagogue. Why anyone would ever believe that a woman's ritual impurity could get in the way of God's salvation. 
In the end, of course, it wasn't too late. The child is not dead, but sleeping, Jesus said to the mourners who laughed at his ridiculous assertion. Putting everyone but the child's parents and his closest disciples out of the house, Jesus took the dead girl by the hand, spoke tenderly to her in Aramaic, and brought her back to life. Nothing, not even millennia of religious tradition, could stand in the way of God's saving love. In the end, Jesus shows us that both Jairus and the nameless woman have an equal claim on God's salvation. At 12 years old, Jairus' daughter was on the cusp of womanhood. And after suffering for 12 long years, the woman's womanhood itself was broken. And Jesus touched and healed them both. Both are called daughter. Both are restored. In Jesus Christ, God's salvation comes to all people, regardless of what the world would say about who deserves it. In fact, that salvation comes to the world in ways that reject and defeat and destroy any attempt by others to restrict it, especially attempts by those who presume to speak for God. In Christ, we see that all people have a claim on God's saving love. He has the power to heal not only the wounded, the suffering, and the broken, but even the brokenness that separates us from one another. You cannot know the saving power of God's love and deny that love to someone else. You cannot receive the healing touch of our Savior and decide that someone else doesn't deserve that touch. God's love has no limit. Who are we to stand in God's way? 